We have our dear friends David and Holly, and uh, they were, they've got two young girls, and uh, they were at Centre Parks on holiday, and um, uh, it seemed like David caught flu, and um, his wife, if she was honest, she said she didn't have much sympathy for him because it was ruining a holiday. She just told him to get over it. You've got man flu, get over it. But he got worse. And um, <clears throat> she eventually did get a bit concerned and sort of rang her mum, who's a nurse, and said, uh, David's got these symptoms, what do you think? And she said, get him to a doctor straight away. So she had to leave Centre Parks, get him to the doctor. Doctor took one look at him, did a very brief examination and said, you've got to get him to hospital quick. And so that's what she did. She got him to the hospital. And while he was there, he was paralysed from the neck down. Every ability to move from the neck down went. And... Um, the case was very unusual in that they hadn't seen one of these cases before uh, recently and his bed was surrounded by doctors and consultants because um, they had never seen this before and they all gathered around and she wondered if this was a good sign or a bad sign. So she asked one of the consultants, you know, is this a good sign that I'm, I'm getting so much attention, my husband getting so much attention, there's nearly 20 people around the bed. And she said, he said, no, it's, this is not good. So she said, um, what do you mean it's not good? Well, I mean, he said, you, 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 what's your house like? Is it, will you be able to cope with a man who's paralysed from the neck down for the rest of his life? She said, no. What, what? She said, well, you may, you're going to have to get your house altered or move somewhere because that's what you've got. Can you imagine that? She's a young mum, two kids. It's happened within about a 48-hour period and she just texted everybody, everybody she knew, please pray for my, my David. He's, this is the prognosis. One of his uh, friends, JJ, arrives at the hospital. He says, I don't know why I'm at the hospital, but I just feel I need to go to the hospital and see him and pray for him. And while he's parking the car in the car park, God speaks to him. And he says, um, tell him to get up, pick up his bed and walk. And he said, I can't do that. I mean, that's just irresponsible. This man is totally paralysed from the neck down. I, can I said, that's what I want you to do. So he goes into the office, he sits, he goes into the hospital, sits up by his bed, and David is in, obviously, huge discomfort and pain. And in the end, he has to say, look, would you, would you leave? I can't, I can't cope. I just need to sleep. I just need to rest. I, I just... So JJ just starts to leave the ward and then suddenly he turns around and he says, this might seem completely strange to you and weird. And even a bit callous and unkind, but I was in the, I was in the park, car park and God said to me to tell you to get up, pick up your bed and walk. And I just leave that with you. 
He left the war. David just lay there and thought, that's just crazy. So he stayed there overnight. The nurses had to regularly move him because they were concerned about bed sores even starting at that early stage. So they kept moving him and it was a really bad night. But all the way through his brain was going, get up, pick up your bread, bed and walk. That's just, it's just, it's just, it's like an echo chamber, it just kept on, it just kept on playing and it wouldn't stop. And he slept and he woke up next morning and it's still ringing in his ears. Get up, pick up your bed and walk. So he did. First thing in the morning, to the complete astonishment of the nurses in the ward, who quickly ran to get a doctor because they couldn't understand it, consultants from everywhere rushed into the ward and saw him walking. Just got up and walked. And they did... (laughs) (laughs) They spent... They wouldn't let him go. They spent the next day just doing all the tests that they could because they could not make sense of what had just happened. Next day, they just had to let him go because they couldn't hold him. (laughs) There was absolutely nothing wrong. And he was healed instantly. I think God deserves a big... Don't you love those stories? I tell you the stories you don't like. Are the ones where they stay in bed and are paralysed from the neck down and never change. See, we want to deal with a subject that is very close to our hearts, Foss and I, in this session. One of the greatest obstacles to living a life full of signs and wonders And that is the disappointments that we face. And they're real. I'm an elder of a local church. I face the consequences daily of those who do not get healed. I do most of the cremations and funerals. I see it firsthand. I'm not just one of these travelling evangelists who just talk about the glory days. I sit by people's bedsides as they die. And so this is, what we're teaching is out of reality, it's out of what really is life. Lazarus is a great story, isn't it? But he died. Eventually, after that glorious experience of resurrection, he died. Floss and I are, were in Northumberland with uh, Floss's dad, who's alive then on holiday, giving him a break, giving him um, uh, exposure to that part of the world that he'd not seen before. We were, I think we were having a coffee somewhere, and um, we get a text from our son Ben. Ben is our youngest uh, child, and he and Amy were expecting their first child, which was our first grandchild. 
and uh, she was uh, nearly 37 weeks pregnant. And uh, we get a text. And the text says, um, we're off to, off to hospital. We think, oh, great, it's happening. Um, we haven't felt the baby move today. Which is not uncommon. When the baby engages, it can go very um, quiet down there. So ladies tell me, I've no experience myself. And um, we prayed. And um, we get a text message just a little while later, which says, um, Mum, Dad, you really do need to pray. It's not looking good. And then we get a third text. One we will never forget. Mum, Dad. The baby's dead. We gathered all our stuff, drove the long journey back straight away. We were in faith. We'd heard of stories like this where the child had been born and the child was alive and... Uh, why not now? This was a classic situation for God to intervene and for us to have another story to tell of his great goodness. When we get home, obviously, they were distraught. Two days later, we had to be with them in the delivery ward where she was induced and baby Talitha was born. But she did not breathe. We held Talitha in our arms and believed that God could um, resurrect her. But it did not happen. I remember at the cremation, uh, just laying my hand on the small coffin. There's nothing worse, is there, than being in a cremation and seeing a baby coffin. I still had faith. God could do it. I still believed. It wasn't impossible. It had to be more glorious. But it didn't happen. And suddenly we're having to face one of the greatest challenges for us. Now we appreciate that some of you have suffered far more than we have. And so forgive us. We're not trying to in any way belittle your suffering. We've just got to talk out of our own personal experience. That's all we can do. And, and this was huge for us. It was our first grandchild. And um, suddenly we're faced with this situation of huge disappointment. And um, nobody had prepared us to face this. And it was so easy to abandon all that we believed in Scripture in the face of circumstances. So I'm being honest here, you know, it was easy to go down that route. This is something that um, happened in Matthew 11. Let me read it to you. It's a little insight into... Um, what perhaps is going on in the mind of John the Baptist while he's in prison? Let me read it to you. 
Matthew, other Gospels tell this story, but Matthew puts it in a way that is particularly insightful. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. There's the, there's the true gospel. You hear it and you see it. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, the authentic authentication of Jesus was signs, wonders, miracles. We know he was the Son of God because of that. Yeah? The authentication of the disciples was the same. You knew they were Jesus' disciples because they did the things that Jesus did. Signs, wonders, miracles. It was the authentication of an apostle. We looked at that yesterday. That they are come with signs and wonders. If they don't, you question whether they're true apostles. The authentication of the local church is the same. How do we know you are truly believers? You should be able to say to them, signs, wonders, miracles. It's the same authentication. And if they're not there, we need to seriously question what our faith really entails. But this, I don't want to say any more about that. I want to say about verse 6. This is how Jesus finishes it in Matthew's Gospel. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Why did Jesus finish it with that little phrase? Because Jesus is the greatest pastor that there ever is, and ever was, and ever will be. And he understood what was happening in John's heart. There was a real danger, because of circumstances that weren't what he anticipated or expected, overwhelming him and him becoming offended. I've been around um, a long time. <laughs> so I've seen a few things. Obviously one of the great um, uh, uh, causes of people to stumble is immorality. It seems that even now, still, we're getting great church leaders who are falling because of um, immorality. So it is a huge problem and one of the greatest obstacles in our churches today. But there's one who comes quite close after that. In my experience, I've seen so many people lost to passionate Christianity because they got offended. They took offence. 
And there was real danger that John the Baptist would get offended. And why was that? Well, it's very simple. He hears all these stories about what Jesus is doing, healing the sick, casting out demons, miracle after miracle. It seems like a miracle train. And yet he's still stuck in prison. How come Jesus, all these things are happening and I'm still stuck here? Ever felt like that? It's, 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 it's the ground for offence. And then you look at John's life. Why was he in prison? He was obedient. He was just doing what, what Jesus told him to do and he ends up in prison. Isn't, that's not how it's meant to be, is it? He should be enjoying freedom and yet he's imprisoned. Thirdly, Jesus said, hey, real ministry is caring for those who are in prison and visiting them. You know, we don't know this as a fact, but I, I think it's, it, it makes sense. Why would John the Baptist send disciples to Jesus if Jesus had come to him? He would have asked Jesus directly. Jesus hadn't bothered to even visit him. There's another grounds for offence. Fourthly, Luke 4. What does Jesus say was his manifesto? To set prisoners free. And I'm stuck in prison. How can that be true? And then finally, I'm sure there are more reasons to be offended in this, but this is the ones I can think of. This is what it says in Matthew 11 about John the Baptist. Jesus' words. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. If Jesus won't act for the, one of the greatest men who's ever lived, who will he act for? And just to add to that, it's his cousin. Can't you do it? I'm your cousin. And still Jesus does nothing. People use this phrase, don't they? It's, it, does your, it does your head in. I, I, I don't like the phrase, but I get what it means. It does your head in. The, the story of John the Baptist does your head in. And Talitha did our head in. We could not understand what was happening. Offence was very easy for us to go down. Proverbs 13, 12. Do you remember what it says? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Sick. We were in serious danger of being sick. And offence has huge implications. Let me just give you two, and I'm going to hand over to Floss. David's wife, Michal, Saul's daughter. She took offence one day 
at the way that David worshipped. She thought it was undignified. She told him so. This, what it says, were the repercussions of her offence. Samuel 2, 2 Samuel 6, 23. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. When I encounter Christians who are barren, not, I mean physically barren, I mean spiritually barren, one of the first things I think about is, when did you last take offence? Because often, the symptom is a result of offence. Something's happened, circumstances have unfolded, it doesn't fit the goodness of God view that you have. And you take offence. Let me give you another example. What about um, Elizabeth and her husband, Zachariah? Zachariah is so disappointed because he's now an old man. His wife has had no children. And he's in the temple serving in his priestly duties. An angel comes, tells him he's going to have a child. He doesn't believe it. He speaks unbelief. And the angel says... Because you've taken offence at what I've said, you're going to be silent. And he never spoke another word until John the Baptist was born. It's interesting that his father suffered from offence. And Jesus wanted his son, John the Baptist, to not suffer likewise. Offence caught his barrenness. And it shuts our voice. It is deadly. But in the face of disappointment, it's so understandable. <laughs> okay, so I just want to say to you that... Um, I didn't handle this very well. And I will tell you that from the outset because I'm not up here telling you that I did it brilliantly. Because I didn't. I really didn't. And I learnt an awful lot through it, but it took a long time. It took a long time. And I did, I was offended. Hugely offended at uh, why God had allowed this. And it had such a huge effect, effect on my life huge effect physically as well. I was actually off work for five months because I was broken. And, um, you know, I really, really don't want you to think that I'm standing here to tell you how to do it because I did it brilliantly. But I want to share with you what I learned. And so, in a sense, we want to give you five um, tools, really, as to how to overcome disappointment and um, I'm going to start a tough one um, possibly the toughest and the first one is that you choose to forgive you choose to forgive and um, you know I told you I'm reading Genesis I've just got to the story of Joseph now if ever there was a story about forgiveness you know this those of you who know your Bibles you know Joseph was an amazing story of forgiveness. He chose to forgive. I was just reading, I just was so, it struck me again when Joseph was 
are absolutely um, betrayed and sold as a slave by his brothers. They've even thought of killing him. The depths of anguish and abandonment and rejection and pain that Joseph went through. Sometimes that story is so familiar to us that we actually don't allow Holy Spirit to really touch our hearts with it. It was in, can you imagine your family doing that to you? And yes, there are people in our world at this moment who are doing that to people. And Mo Farah's example just recently is exactly that. His uncle sold him. This is what happened to Jacob. But how did Jacob respond? You know, some people would think, well, he, if anybody had the right to be offended and be angry and, and, you know, want revenge, it was Joseph, didn't it? Joseph had the right. So we would think in our world. But this is what Joseph said to his brothers. And you'll know this in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God, who had been on the, in a sense, absent in that situation, God hadn't rescued Joseph, had he? But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that is exactly what happened because Joseph was in that place. Many, many, went through that drought and were saved. Even the family of God. God sent Joseph into Egypt so he could organise things so that Jacob and his sons could benefit from it. They went to Egypt. That's the amazing thing. And Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But, you know, while he was... And he was a man in such power and authority, wasn't he? He could have easily taken revenge on those brothers with justification. He could have told people what they'd done to him. And there would have been no question about him punishing them, putting them to death, whatever. He had the power to do it, but he chose not to use it. Not only did he choose not to um, take his revenge, not to accuse them, he actually chose to rid them of guilt and shame. Now, that that is extraordinary. He didn't want them to feel guilt and shame. Now, I have to say, uh, that takes a lot. Um... And he said this to them, to his brothers, don't therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Imagine being able to say that. You sold me, but I don't want you to be grieved or angry. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither ploughing or harvest. But God sent me here before you to preserve a posterity for you on the earth. The brothers who had sought to kill him or sold him into slavery. And what he says, God sent me here so that we could preserve you. We could preserve you. That was the family of God. And, you know, it could have been curtains for the family of God if Joseph hadn't been there. Because they would have starved in Israel. Isn't that extraordinary? And Joseph knew that. However Joseph got hold of the big picture while he was in prison, while he was a servant in Potiphar's house, and then he was accused falsely of of attempting to rape the woman of the house. He had the most extraordinary, terrible things happen to him. But somehow or other, God gave him the big picture, and I have no idea how, but he chose 
to forgive. And he went to great lengths to forgive. And I think, you know, we can only really go to those lengths to forgive when we really grasp something. And um, I don't really know who coined this phrase, but it's absolutely brilliant. Unforgiveness is like drinking deadly poison and then thinking the other person's going to die. Un- unforgiveness is like drinking deadly poison and then thinking the other person's going to die. It does nothing to the other person, but it does keep you in prison all the time. It keeps you yeah. attached to that person. I can only encourage you yeah, to, be, to be forgiving people. But you know something that I had to deal with? Um, and this, I think, it can be shocking to you, but this is what happened to me. And I think, if, I, if you're really honest... This is maybe what happens to you. I had to face up to the fact that I had to forgive God. Now that sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? But actually, we often have to forgive because of perceptions of things. And my perception of God was that he really hadn't come up trumps. He had abandoned us. He'd abandoned my son and his wife. He'd abandoned my granddaughter. And I had to come to the fact that I had to actually release to God forgiveness and say, you know, I I forgive you and release it. And I found it very, very difficult because I found it difficult not to blame God for our tragedy because he had all the power to make it different and he didn't. And so I want to encourage you to be honest with yourselves. And if you do, you know, if you do... When you're really real with yourself, if you do realise that you do need to forgive God, then just do it. Don't worry about the theology, but do it and just say, God, I'm sorry, I just need to forgive you for not doing that for me. And I think that can be a turnaround, it was certainly a turnaround point for me. Certainly that. So that's number one, forgiveness. And the second point is get real, and that's actually really what I've been talking about. You know, we have to get real with our emotions, what we really feel. We have to be able to really face up to what's going on in our hearts and what we're really thinking. And that, almost that script that's in our minds, what that happens. And you know, that's so, that's so scriptural, getting real with your... Because if ever there's a man in scripture who got real with what he felt is David. And you read the Psalms and you know what David said. You know, why have you abandoned me? He is, he is absolutely, put it out there. He's not afraid to tell God, you know. And one of my favourite stories in the New Testament is the story of the disciples on the Emmaus Road. And along comes Jesus, but they don't know it. And he walks next to them. And and they start, you know, they start, he said, why are you so downcast, you know. And they start telling him the story. Have you not heard what's happened in Jerusalem? This is, these are disciples whose world had just come crashing down. Everything they had hoped for was dead in the tomb. And they, and they told this person walking alongside them their disappointments. They told them what they'd hoped for, but it hadn't come about. And what did Jesus do? Did he run away? Did he say, I don't want to hear you being unfaithful? No, Jesus doesn't do that. He stayed with them and then he revealed himself to them. And in that revelation came 
healing. And he, it, it would have been wonderful to walk on that Emmaus road because he says he opened the scriptures and told them everything that the scriptures taught about him. Wouldn't that have been a great Bible study to be in? But you know, Jesus wanted to stay with them. And if you are really honest with your feelings, Jesus is not offended. He doesn't berate you for not being a good and upright Christian who's just, you know, doing it all well. He doesn't. He comes alongside you and he puts his arm around you and he will weep with you. And actually, just to say that's what we need to do with each other. If you've got somebody who's in deep distress, don't give them clever words. Please don't give them clever words. Put your arm around them and weep with them. That's what they need. And that's what came to me. You know, God was so good to me. You know, and God doesn't disappear when you vent your disappointment. He just is there and he comes and it's beautiful. Thirdly, we can choose our attitude in the face of huge disappointments we can choose our attitude let me give you an example and I won't mention any names but we've been recently with two couples two dear couples that we, we love dearly and have been great friends to us and both have had the same tragedy both have lost their um, daughters to cancer tragically both situations and yet what has been clear as we've been with them is that the two couples have chosen different attitudes. Oh, we sat with one in their lounge. There were the pictures of their family. There was their daughter. But they chose to not be defined by it. And yet we were another couple where they hadn't yet been able to get to that point and we're still totally dominated by it we have to as difficult as it might be we have to get to that point where we choose our attitude and we can do that in the power of the Holy Spirit now different people take different amounts of time and I'm appreciate that but the reason why I say this is there's a great quote by a, a man called Victor Franklin some of you would know that he was a holocaust survivor so he said this he penned this while in the holocaust experience everything can be taken from a man but one thing the last of human freedoms what is it? To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. <coughs> Isn't that powerful? Could there be anything more darker than what he was facing and yet he could choose his attitude? And that's the story of Joseph. Joseph chose... I mean, his scenario was hell. And yet his interpretation was heaven. God's rule and reign has been working out in my life so that the, the people of God can be saved 
in the desperate famine that would have wiped them out. In other words, what looked like hell is in fact heaven. What a change of attitude. Staggering. But we see it in Jesus, don't we? As he's facing the cross, he says, for the joy set before me. Can you imagine that? He could have interpreted his hell. Instead, it's heaven. Of course, you know what the joy is, don't you? You are the joy. When he said, the joy set before me, he was saying, the joy of spending eternity with you. We, we, we love to be hospitable. We love people living in our house. We love people staying. People have stayed for all sorts of lengths of time. Uh, John, you're about a year, weren't you? Stayed with us. I mean, all sorts of people stayed with us. We love it. We love it, love it, love it. We love it when they arrive. We love it when they go. Because <laughs> we get our house back. We get part of our room back. We, we've had our, our, our oldest son living with us for two years and he's soon to go. Hallelujah! But God says, the joy that's set for, before me is that I've opened up my house for you and you're going to stay with me for eternity. That's a little aside, but isn't that a staggering? Staggering. Choose our attitude. And in order to do that, I need to say this, because it's, it's really important. And that's this. We have no more understanding than it, when it all began. We, we, do not, we do not understand. And you must be facing lots of situations where you do not understand. But then God talks about peace that transcends understanding. Try to work that one out. Well, let me put it in this way. This is somebody, let me quote them. To have peace that transcends understanding, you are going to have to let go of your need to understand everything. Get it? That's how you get peace, with giving up a right to understand. There is, uh, there is understanding, there is a reason, but I will never know that reason, I don't think, until I face to face with Jesus, and then I won't need the reason. But we can choose whether things continue to define us or not. Um, sure, um, was it a year or maybe two years after Talitha died? I think. What were you going to say? We were back to Northampton. Two years? Oh. Two years. Two, at least two years, yeah. Two years. So two years after this incident, <coughs> I said to Floss, we're going back to Northumberland. And we're going to go back to the very cottage that we stayed in when we got the news. And you didn't want to go, did you? Uh, and... Um, I just feel I needed to insist that we did. We did it. And she was so gracious, as Frost has been all the way through her life living with me. She needs to be gracious. Uh, she said, Let, let's do it. Let's do it. And you may be thinking, why did I do that? Why did I do that? 
for the simple reason I wasn't going to allow this incident to define me. It wasn't going to be all my life. That was not diminishing anything of the pain. It was just recognizing that I had a, I had the right to choose, and I could choose freedom. I could choose freedom. Ben and Amy have chosen freedom in this defining moment. They have helped lots of couples who have gone through the same experience with their counsel and advice and help. And many people online have contacted them to find help and reassurance. They brought comfort to many because they were not going to let the event define them. Let me put this in another context to what's happened in our church recently. I'll do this quickly. I'm just saying, time's going. Can we perhaps finish it one? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, okay. I don't think, I don't think we can get it through. Okay. So, um, one Sunday morning, straight after service, uh, Isaac came to me. Isaac was the, uh, one of the top reconstruction surgeons in the country. He came up to me having a cup of coffee and he said, Grantly, I have... Um, I've just been given the, the, the best job in the whole of the Great Britain uh, at the top hospital. I've got my dream job. And I said, oh, Isaac, I'm so thrilled. I'm so great, great. Of course, you're going to take it, aren't you? And he said, no, I'm not. I said, why not? He said, because I'm dying. I've got a brain tumour. I don't know how long I've got. Well, you could have, the whole place could have opened up and I, I was just... We prayed, we fasted, we prayed, we fasted, we anointed with oil, we prayed, we fasted, you can name it, we did it. Young family, young kids. I buried Isaac. Buried him. Kim was one of our year outers. She spent a year serving the church, she spent much longer than that. She was just brilliant. She met the love of her life. Her name, his name was Dan. Uh, I was uh, privileged to be involved in their marriage service. And uh, it was just a great occasion. Two days in their honeymoon, he has a seizure. They think it's just the excitement of getting married, all that trauma and such like. But when he came home, he had some tests. He had a brain tumour. We prayed, we fasted. We did everything we knew to do we lost one Isaac we weren't going to lose another but we buried Dan seeing this trauma on Kim's face it couldn't still haunts me I hate brain tumours with a passion I go after them as, in every way I can I, I, I just hate them. I can't begin to describe what it does to people, but I hate them. I'm so angry with Satan. Another of our uh, year outers, <coughs> uh, Amy, she's just doing a, she's just doing a fantastic job. She stays longer, uh, and uh, she's been working with our kids and children. She's just amazing. She meets the love of her life. It's Tom. He's one of our elders' sons. 
They get engaged. It's all wonderful. Shortly after the engagement, he has a seizure. And they rush him to hospital, and he has a brain tumor. I lost count of how many times we anointed him with oil to see his healing. And we prayed, we fasted. We did everything that we did for Isaac and Dan and more. One day through the letterbox, I received something that I'd never received before. It was a faith statement. It was a faith declaration. It was just a simple card with their picture on it. It was a magnetic card so you could put on your fridge. It was their picture, Amy and Tom, and it just said, save this date. Because when they gave him three months to live, he chose to get married a year later. What a faith statement. I married Amy and Tom. <laughs> Amy and Tom are fine. He's totally healed. He goes for checkups every three months. All clear. All clear. We didn't let disappointment define us. We were determined to let the kingdom of God define us. And that's why we've seen miracles of a magnitude and a measure that few have seen. And we're grateful to God. And it's been his grace, but you mustn't let disappointment define you. Okay, so, so just to, in a sense, go over what we were talking about this morning, about you know, that last session's dealing with disappointment and really trying to encourage you um, to learn a bit quicker than I did um, the, the things that I needed to learn through that and how not to um, not to let it define me and not to let it overwhelm me and not to lose my relationship with God which for a while I did um, and just to be able to be real and just to encourage you to do that and just to be able to talk to God and just God's got broad shoulders and he does not mind if you pour out your heart to him and tell him how it feels, okay, how it feels. Um, so, uh, so those two things that we've shared with you and, um, you know, to have that sense of, you know, and that's so true. I wanted to, un I wanted to know why. And I kept saying to God, why, 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 why? And I think that's often the case. So, you know, go through a traumatic experience, you go through a loss or something that happens, you want to know why. And there are no answers sometimes this side of eternity. And you do have to settle with saying, okay, God, there is mystery. And that's a big thing. And as Christians, we think, you know, that we should know all the answers. And so for non-Christians... You know, looking on, in on you, you don't want to look as if you don't know the answers. But actually, if you're real, non-Christians really appreciate that. They really do, to share with you, so that you don't come across as knowing everything. But all you could do is, well, I don't understand, but I'm still trusting God. And that is the big thing. 
isn't it? To come through that to say, I'm still trusting God. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I have to say, I was so proud of my son and his wife for not allowing it to define them. And they made that choice right at the very, very beginning. And uh, I, it was amazing. And I looked on with awe, really. Um, they, they made choices to put themselves... In fact, their next-door neighbours became pregnant not long after they'd lost Khalifa. And less than the next-door neighbours didn't want to tell Ben and Amy, but eventually they did. And so they walked with them through that pregnancy. That was their first child. And, and then suddenly we had a text from Ben saying, oh, I can't remember what the lady's name was, but she's given birth. But mum, the baby is in intensive care and they don't think the baby's going to live. So they said, please, can we come and stay with you? Because we only live 10 minutes from the hospital. They lived an hour away. Please, can we come and stay with you so that we can go to the hospital and be with them? They were going back into the same place. It was extraordinary. And I believe that God's blessed them for that heart, really, because they've been able to help. They prayed, and that baby came through that. And the baby lived. Yeah. Um, you know, it's amazing. And they've given themselves, to, yeah, they've given themselves to, uh, to, to serving other people who've gone through the same thing. Um, and it's very interesting. When you go through a baby loss, you suddenly find out how many people it affects. And at the moment in church, uh, our under fives worker is trying to set up um, an event for us to really be, um, in a sense, a, just a, a contemplative time to, to, to invite mums who've lost babies to come, and dads as well, to just have a time. You know, it's in Baby Loss Awareness Month. There's a, there's a whole month in October, and there's a week particularly, but they're trying to arrange that so that we can actually give people a place to be real, you know. So, um, anyway, <clears throat> that's going on. So, okay, so number three in our, in our t giving you these tools to help you to face disappointment and deal with it well. And um, the third one is that we, we learn to give a sacrifice of worship, a sacrifice of worship. And, um, you know, we know what worship does. Worship changes the atmosphere, doesn't it? It changes the atmosphere. And, um, and it charges the atmosphere as well. It charges the atmosphere with the power of heaven. And, um, you know, when, you're, when you just allow yourself to worship and to put aside the pain, in a sense, you, you know it's not going to be gone, but you put it aside, you choose to put it aside, then actually the things that we are really struggling with, the things that are like chains that hold us to that place of grief or disappointment, those chains can be broken in worship, broken in worship. And, um, you know, what happens when we get offended by people or by God is that we actually often withdraw from those people. We, we don't want to engage with them. <coughs> and we, we, you know, we go into ourselves or we just choose not to engage with that person. And actually that's what can happen with God as well when we find that we're in that place of pain. Uh, and disappointment that God hasn't come and done what we wanted, then we can actually withdraw from God and say, well, I'm just going to withhold my love from you because you've, you've broken the rules. Or, you know, you just haven't done what I needed you to do. And, um, and disappointment can really cause us to withhold our love and our worship from God 
But actually, we need to actually turn our disappointment to worship. And I, in a sense, I can't emphasize this enough for you. It is so important. And in scripture, we see David doing this when, you know, the son that he had with Bathsheba, that first child he had, which was the, the child was the product of that, you know, illegal relationship that had that, that, that wrong relationship that they had, that child. But David prayed for that child because the child was sick. He prayed and he fasted and he put on sackcloth. That's what it says in scripture. And then when, they, when his attendants came and told him that the child was dead, David, this is what it says. David said to the servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. It's really tough to do. And you do it through tears. But do you know there is something that we learned through this? That <clears throat> on, on the earth there is something that you're never going to be able to do in heaven. And that's not sin. I don't mean that. But actually, you're going to be able to, on earth, you worship, you can worship through tears, and you can worship through pain, and you can give that sacrifice of worship to God. You're not going to be able to do that in heaven, because you won't be in pain, mm -hmm. and you won't worship through tears. Yeah. But what a sacrifice it is when you give God that worship through your tears and your pain, and you decide, I'm just going to look at you, Father God, and I'm not going to blame you. And I'm not, you know, we can be real with God without blaming him. And that's really important, actually. Um, you know, so actually worship, when we come to worship, it's not, we don't focus on what's wrong, do we? We don't focus on what's wrong with our life or somebody else's life or circumstances. But we focus on what's right with God. We focus on him. And uh, it's in those times that it's the right place to do, to declare who God really is, to make those declarations, to say out loud about his heart and his character. You know, it's a huge step in dealing with disappointment when we are able to come to that place and say, I, I thank you, God, that the truth is you are a healer. You are the one who resurrects the dead. You are still that even though I have not necessarily seen that in my own circumstances. But, but you are. And it's incredibly powerful. Actually, it is so powerful. The, the enemy has not got a weapon against the person who's worshipping through tears and pain. Yeah. There is no weapon. It's so powerful. It's so powerful, it can break things. Um, many of you know the song, um, No Longer Slaves, Fear, by Jonathan and Melissa Helser. Um, it's a great, great song. Um, and we were privileged to be at David's tent a few years ago, which is down in Sussex. It's a fantastic, um, it's, it's, a, well, it's a Christian festival with a difference, actually. They start worshipping in the tent at 12 o'clock on Friday, Friday lunchtime, and they continually worship until 12 o'clock on Monday lunchtime. Now, obviously, they do it in teams of worshippers, <laughs> And you can go and be in that tent as long as you like. And uh, Jonathan, and Dave, Jonathan and Melissa Helser are very often there. I think they're going to be there again this year. And we had the, the privilege of hearing Melissa Helser talk about her own situation. And we had no idea 
that, that, as you often don't, about the pain in somebody else's life, do you? When you see them on the stage, she's an amazing worshipper. And if you ever see her, she is an amazing woman of God because she really knows how to worship and she really goes after it. But she shared with us how she actually has a, um, a lifelong, um, well, it's, you know, unless she gets healed, it's going to be a lifelong disease that actually brings her huge pain and actually seizes up her body and makes movement very, very difficult, very painful. And she goes through bouts of time when she can barely get out of bed. And um, she was talking to us about how um, one morning she was just in bed and she just said, Lord, I, you know, I'm just sorry, I can't, I'm just too, I just cannot get out of bed this morning. And, I, you know, I, I just can't. And God just said to her, Melissa, I want you to get up and I want you to worship me. I want you to just sing. And she said, no, God, I can't. She had this argument with God. She said, I really can't, God. I really can't. And then God said, yes, you can and do it. And when you do it, it'll be it'll be um, help to you. And so she got up out of bed and she said she was, she was just doing, you know, she had to dry her hair and it, everything was hurting and aching. It was really tough. She had no energy. And, you know, God just enabled her to sing the song that it, I call it Catch the Wind song. And this is what, and she, and she said, I was, I was drying my hair and it was really difficult because my arms didn't, were so hurting, and she said, and God just put this song in my spirit. I am strong and full of life. I am steadfast, no compromise. I lift my sails to the sky. Your faithfulness has never let me down. I'm confident I'll see your goodness now. It was just the most amazing testimony of a woman who decided that she would give her sacrifice of worship to God, and how it just broke, and she said then for the rest of the day she was absolutely fine. It had broken something. She wasn't healed, and she told us, shared us that, she still suffers. But when you, if you ever see Melissa Helser on the stage, and if you go onto YouTube and look, she, I just want to encourage you to watch her, because she's an amazing woman who's giving God a sacrifice of praise. And I just want to encourage you, I had to learn to do that. I didn't want to. There was nothing in me that wanted to be happy and praise God. Um, and actually, the two things don't necessarily have to go together. You don't have to be happy to praise God and give him your worship. He is worthy of our worship, whatever our circumstances are. It never changes. But what does change, if you give God his worth, it changes your heart, it changes your mind, it changes your emotions. It has a huge effect on you, on all your, you know... Um, all the things that go on in your mind, all those those hormones, those all those chemicals that that need you know need to be boosted to get you to be thinking right. That is exactly what it does, and I learned to do that. But it was tough, and I, I learned to go to church and cry through worship. But I was determined to do it in the end, and I'm just so grateful to God that He enabled me to do that. So that was number three, and the fourth one is count your blessings. Um, and this is so important because that verse that Grantly read out earlier, hope deferred makes the heart sick. The second half of that verse is, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And if yeah, you want to have a tree of life in your life when things are tough, actually, we need to remember the things that God has done. So often we just get focused on the thing that God isn't doing. 
um, you know, when we meet each other, how are you? Well, you know, this has gone wrong this week or something. You know, and I, can I suggest to you that when you meet each other, actually, you don't just share the woes, but actually say, do you know, God's been so good to me this week because of this. Absolutely, because actually that builds one another up, but counting your blessings. You know, um, <laughs> the, the story of Gideon in the Old Testament is a, is a fantastic one. You know, he's an example of someone who just looked at the now and he, he'd forgotten the history of God. He was hiding in the wine press, wasn't he? Um, threshing his grain when the Midianites were coming because they kept stealing all the grain. You know, he was in a, a situation of war, really. And he was a very fearful man. You know, but along comes the angel and says to him, you know, mighty man of God. He says, you know, it's like, like who me? But you know, when God, you know, when God came to Gideon, you know, he actually says to, to the angel, he said, well, where are God's wonders? You know, I haven't seen anything. And actually, it just made him blind to what God had done in the past, or the wonderful story of God's redemption of the people of Israel. He'd forgotten it. And we, we need to learn not to do that. And the story that Grantly told you earlier about Isaac, who was our surgeon, who got a brain tumour, the extraordinary thing about Isaac and his wife Sabina was that on the day he got his diagnosis, he went home, he told her, the children were at school, they sat down at their kitchen table and he said, this is what we're going to do, Sabina. We're going to just count all the blessings that we've known in our life together. And they sat at their table for two hours, just counting the blessings that God had given to them. Now that man died, but he died gloriously. And his son, young Isaac, is the most extraordinary worship leader because, I believe, the, the, the blessing came down from his father because he'd chosen. It's again, it's choosing your attitude, isn't it? He chose to count his blessings. We need to learn how to do that. So that was number four, count your blessings. And I think God actually, some, we get so caught up in things of life, don't we? So caught up with the immediate that's going wrong or something in our family that's difficult and we forget and I think it's always good practice to go back to God and say thank you God you did this thank you God you've done that it's very it's it's health it's life okay and the last one the last one is we need to let the word of God rule our hearts and uh, you know the place where disappointment sits in your heart it's the same place that the Word of God wants to inhabit. If we fill it with disappointment and not the Word of God, then we are, you know, we're on a, 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 in a dodgy place. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And we need to do that. You know, um, and when, we don't have, when we don't understand and we've got questions which was just absolutely true for me. I had so many questions, so much wrestling, and so much, I had such anger because it just wasn't right. And, um, you know, we too have to rest on what we do know. We, there are things that we don't know. There are things that are always going to be mysteries. But what we have to do is we have to stand on the solid rock, which is Jesus, but that we have to stand on God's revealed word, what we absolutely do know, and we do know that Jesus was the exact representation of God. And Jesus was good. And so we know that God is good. 
All the time, God is good. Even in your pain, even in your grief, actually God is still good. And, you know, I found that it was really important for me to learn this lesson because very often we can sacrifice what we do know on the altar of the unknown. Do you understand what I'm saying? We can't afford to do that. We cannot afford to sacrifice what we do know, what we've already had revealed to us, that God is good. That's the biggest thing in this area, that God is good. And we can sacrifice that and give it up because of something we don't know. We don't know the answer to it. And if we don't know the answer to it, it's definitely not worth sacrificing what we do know, that God is good, that he gave his son because he loved the world so much. He gave his son because he loved you and me so much. And that where the word of God speaks about God's nature, we have to stand on the truth of scripture. And we cannot afford to sacrifice that on the altar of the unknown. And I, I did that for a while. I definitely did. But God brought me right back. I'm so grateful he did. So grateful he did. And it's really difficult to, to, you know, to, to be in that place. But we need to learn to stand on it. And, you know, we know that God's good. You know, I had to make that choice. I had to make that choice. It is a choice. And in a sense, all of these things are choices. You have to choose to forgive. You have to choose your attitude. You, you know, you, you have to choose to worship. All these things. You know, we have to make that choice. And I had to make that choice. And, and I'm just so grateful that Holy Spirit enabled me to do that. And we do need to cry out to Holy Spirit to enable us to do it because it is a bit unnatural. It's a bit supernatural. And we do have to ask God to do, help us to do that. And then I've just realised, actually, I said there was five things, but actually there were six. <laughs> but the sixth one is so important. So we're going to stand on the word of God. Whatever God said, whatever's in scripture, we believe it's true. When, when God is called good, we stand on it. But the last thing is we need to covet the presence of God. Because it's only really in the presence of God when you find the strength and the ability and the peace that passes understanding. It's in that presence. We have to covet it. And you know, I love Moses in scripture. I love the story of Moses. And one of my most favourite stories of Moses is in Exodus chapter 33 where, you know, God's actually really fed up with the people of Israel. Got really fed up with them because they keep rumbling and, you know, and he just said, and he says to Moses, you know, okay, um, okay Moses, I'm going to send you up from here. I'm going to send an angel with you, but I'm not coming with you because otherwise I think God was uh, concerned that, you know, he might get really angry with the people and wipe them out. And he said to Moses, you know, I'm not going to go with you. But I'll send an angel now. If, if some of us had to, if God came and said, would you like an angel to go with you everywhere you go? We'd say, yes, please, wouldn't we? Really quickly. But did Moses? No, he didn't. Because he, he pleaded with God to, to go with them. He pleaded. You know, because he knew that the presence of God was more important than anything else. And as a church, and in a sense, that's what we've chosen to have as our culture of our church culture of our school of supernatural that we covet the presence of God above everything. 
And so if God comes by his presence and inter, intervenes and we don't get things done like we think we should, that's brilliant because it's in, it's in the presence of God we find life. It's so important. And you know what Moses said to God? He said, no, please come with us. Because he said, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And as churches, we need to grab hold of that. It's a slight aside, but in a sense, you know, there are plenty of organisations out in the world who are doing good, who are feeding the poor, who are, you know, taking stuff to Ukraine, who are doing, which is all good, and we should be involved in that. But there is no other organisation on the face of the earth that can bring the presence of God to yeah. people Come than on. the church. Yeah. That's you and me. And we need to covet the presence so much because I'm, I'd much rather people come in. I used not to be like this, but I'm now. To, I want people to come into our building and when they come in, they encounter God. In fact, we pray that. We pray that on a Tuesday morning before food club. God, as people come in this building, may they encounter you because it's in the encountering God that we're changed. It's in that encountering place. And... Um, you know, we need to remind ourselves that when we're in disappointment and grief, that it's in the presence of God that we're going to find that comfort and we're going to find that healing. And sometimes, and I did this, you know, you have to drag your unwilling body and emotions into that place where just one touch or just a few gentle touches can change everything. And that's what happened to me. As we need to keep going, we need to keep putting ourselves in that place and healing will come. Whether it's healing of your emotions or healing of your body. Um, we have a lovely friend called Jeff um, and he told us a story about a, a girl in his church and she, was, she had severe ME, so severe that often she, all she could do was lie in a darkened room day, night. Um, she was a Christian and her family were Christians and every Sunday morning she would make herself get up and she would make her parents take her to church so that she could get prayed for. And while she was, you know, still ill, God gave her a vision of herself and she saw herself teaching children in Africa somewhere and she could clearly see this situation. And she knew that's what was in her heart to do as well. That's what God had given her to do. So she kept going. For six months, her parents took her to church every single day. Because they knew that bringing her into the presence of God was the place where she would find her healing, where she would find release. And that is exactly what happened one, one morning. She was completely healed. And she ended up going on the mission field. She went out to do a taster with a, a I can't remember which organisation. And she arrived in this African village to find it was exactly what she'd seen in her dream. You know, the presence of God is more important than anything. So crave the presence. Put yourself, and I'd say to you as well, your children, encourage your children and your grandchildren to be in the presence of God. Encourage them. Even if they don't take much notice, the Holy Spirit's able to work. You know, isn't he? So encourage that the presence of God is so important. <clears throat> so I'm just going to wind up now. So those six things, 
Firstly, forgive. Secondly, you can get real. Thirdly, you can choose your attitude. Fourthly, we need to count our blessings. Fifth, we need to let the word of God rule in our hearts. And sixth, we need to covet the presence of God. So, you know, I want to encourage you to do that. So I'm just going to, if you just want to put your notebooks down or something, we're just going to pray into this, okay. So just close your eyes. This is just between you and God. And first of all, I want to encourage you. We're just in the Holy Spirit, we just love you. We love your presence. Thank you, you bring Jesus and Father to us. We covet your presence now. And your presence is life. Really help us. I just want to just say to you is there anything that you need to forgive somebody or God for I just want to encourage you to do that it's, forgiveness is a choice and it's a command it's a command and it's a lifestyle just be real you can take it to God and just do what I did let's just forgive God if we need to or I want you to forgive and release forgiveness to somebody else who may have hurt you even if they didn't know, understand what they were doing or even if they, if they did which is more to the point it's a choice don't forget that unforgiveness is like deadly poison it will kill you not the other person Holy Spirit Holy Spirit thank you Father God, we just, if this applies to you, go with it. If it doesn't, just pray for the others. If there's a disappointment in your life, maybe something that you felt was a promise of God that has not happened. And just bring it to God. Yes, Lord. Yes. Bring it to God, that disappointment. Just be real with him. Just say, this is how I feel. Don't blame him, but tell him. And he'll draw near to you. Holy Spirit, come to Share my back here. If you've had words spoken over you or scripture prophecies or something from scripture that you feel God has spoken to you and you haven't seen it yet, you keep standing on that scripture because that's truth. You say, God, I choose to stand on that. I choose to stand on the truth. I will not sacrifice what I do know on the altar of the unknown. I just release it. Holy Spirit, I just pray now. Right now, you enable people just to release, release that disappointment and say, I'm going to stand on your word. 
what you say is true. And I'm going to let your word rule in my heart. Thank you, Jesus. Father, will you help us to be people who count our blessings? We don't just see the negative, but just see everything you've done for us. Everything you've done. And we count it. It means we consider it. We lift it up to God and say, thank you, Father God. This is the place I'm going to live out of. This tree of life. I'm going to live out of it. Hallelujah. Praise your name. And Father God, I just want to pray over these dear people that you would just release a spirit of worship over them. They'll be able to give you that sacrifice of praise inside good times and out. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for the privilege that we can give you a sacrifice of praise here on earth but we'll never be able to do it in heaven. We want to be able to do that, but you're worth it. Amen.